Sorry, guys, I couldn't resist. I love The Chosen. And I was like, hey, we're going to watch it as our scripture reading today. Uh, if you haven't seen that show, it captures the nuance of some of these stories about Jesus so well. And this story this morning is no different. If, if, uh, if you hadn't picked up on it yet, we've said it a few times, but our, our text this morning uh, is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Maybe it's a story you know really, really well. Maybe it's a story that you've never heard before. And I'm going to tell you this as we start either way. If you want to know who Jesus was and what he was after, there is hardly a better example in the New Testament than his conversation with this woman in John chapter 4. There are lots of stories about Jesus in our New Testament, obviously, that show his brilliant mind, that show his moral clarity, that show his resolve and his courage, but this one, this one shows his heart. And so if you have your Bible with you, turn to John chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the fourth book in your New Testament, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let me catch us up just a little bit. So uh, if uh, you remember, Jesus was in Judea uh, before the story. So if you look at this map up here on the screen, uh, you'll see Judea is this kind of orange section down here to the south. That's uh, the big city part of ancient Israel, that's where Jerusalem was, and uh, a lot of the government and the leadership uh, lived down south. Jesus has been in Judea the last few chapters. Uh, he, was at the, he was at the temple for a while, and then he was baptizing uh, lots of people. But now he, wants, he and his disciples want to head back to Galilee, which is that yellowish part up there to the north. That's actually in verse 3. Jesus decides it's time to go back to where he's from. Between Judea and Galilee, you'll notice, is an area called Samaria. Now, Samaria was politically a part of Israel. They were all under the Roman government at the time. Uh, but Samaria might as well have been its own planet as far as the Jews were concerned. If you were Jewish you would avoid this area like the plague. And I'm going to tell you why in just a second. But so strong was the aversion to Samaria that the Jews were known to actually travel across the Jordan in Judea, so that river running north-south there, into Gentile territory to go north simply to avoid being in Samaria. As awkward as it would be to be among the pagan Gentiles, that was preferred to being in Samaria. That is how deeply these two groups of people despised one another. But look at what John says there in verse 4 of chapter 1. And he, that is Jesus, he had to pass through Samaria. It's an interesting way to put it. Now, what John doesn't mean is, uh, was that the Jordan River was closed that day for construction. And so everybody had to take, you know, I-35 north to Galilee. Jesus didn't have to geographically go to Samaria. He didn't. There's, we, and we know from historical documentation that many Jews, right, took that path around Samaria that I just described. But not Jesus. Jesus has to go. He has to go. He's compelled to go. He's after something there, come hell or high water. So off he goes into Samaria with his disciples. During the journey, 
in the middle of the day, which is the sixth hour by John's count, but that, that means just kind of the middle of the day, Jesus gets tired, and he stops at a town called Sakar. Now, this town had a really famous well. It was, it was a well dug by Jacob himself uh, outside of the city center, uh, and it's here that Jesus decides to take a rest in the shade while his uh, disciples head into town to buy food. Then you see this in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now as the video hinted, a few really striking things happen all at once right here in this moment. First, Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan. Which again is a major no-no. One simply avoided the Samaritans at all costs. And only addressed or interacted with them. Uh, when absolutely necessary. And Jesus not only talks to a Samaritan here, he asks for a cup from a Samaritan, which again, as the video hinted, would potentially make him unclean. There were Jewish religious leaders of the day who said even to to share a dish or a cup with a Samaritan would, would make you unclean as a Jew. Not only that, Not only is Jesus talking to a Samaritan and asking to share a cup with a Samaritan, he's talking to a woman. Now, in general, men and women at this time would not do a lot of interacting outside the home, especially if they were not married. Okay, this is a very traditional society. And what they would really avoid would be an unmarried man and an unmarried woman talking together alone, as is what happens here. As you read this story, I began thinking, man, if there are social taboos left to be unbroken by Jesus, I don't know what they are. He's crossing every boundary. This woman, moreover, she's alone for a reason. Women at this time did most of the water gathering. Apparently, it was too difficult for men to do that. I don't know why. But they would generally come early in the day and when it was cool, and they would come together for protection. This woman comes in the middle of the day, the hottest part, and she comes alone. So John has shown us with just a few details that this woman appears to be an outcast even of the Samaritans. Even the Samaritans look down on this woman. Okay, hold that thought. So her shock is understandable in verse 9. How is it that you... A Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, right? Even she knows you're not supposed to do what you're doing, Jesus. And he responds to her that if she actually knew who he was, she would ask him for water and he would give her living water. Now on the surface, living water, that phrase, uh, it simply means moving water, okay? It means streams and rivers, not the water of a well. But in the Old Testament, okay, if you were to read the story with the background of the Old Testament in mind, living water was an image used often of God's life-giving power and his sustaining supernatural power and his cleansing from sin that only God can do. Okay, living water. The image of water is so prominent in the Old Testament. I mean, you can trace it from beginning to end. Uh, I, I, can, I, I can't totally know for sure what exactly uh, the passage is that Jesus has in mind when he says, I can give you living water. But I think 
Jeremiah 2, verse 13 seems close, where God says to his people, he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus is saying in, to, a, to, a, to a degree here, he said, I'm the fountain, and I offer you living water like this. Now, the woman, she doesn't fully understand yet. She, she says, Jesus, you don't, have a, you don't have a bucket. You have nothing with which to draw water. And Jacob dug this well. It's a pretty good well. It's reliable. It's been around a long time. Jesus, are you saying you have something better than this? But she eventually bites, verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and come here. Now the, and the woman says back to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you are now, the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, we aren't totally sure what this woman's situation was. Okay, is she some kind of serial adulterer? It's possible. But remember, at this time, uh, it, was, it was legally impossible for a woman to divorce her husband. Uh, that, was, that was completely the man's prerogative. So if a, woman, if a husband of hers did decide to divorce her, she would have very little recourse to do anything about it. So it's possible, it's very possible that she's simply a victim of the legal procedures of her day around men and women. Uh, she keeps getting rejected and has to marry someone else, or could be a mix of both. We don't know. Either way, now we know why she's alone at the well in the middle of the day. This kind of, of shame would follow you around wherever you went, especially at this time. Because everybody in town knows this woman's problems and they want nothing to do with her. She, and she's learned that accepting that shame and, and living around it and is the best way to get along. Okay? She's, she's simply accepted that this is her lot in life. But Jesus doesn't accept that. Because Jesus is after our shame and not our pretense. I told you early on, this story shows what Jesus is after perhaps more than any other. And one of the first things we see in his interaction with this woman is Jesus is after our shame and not our pretense. Jesus makes it clear to this woman pretty quickly that what he is offering her is not literal water. This is not a conversation about wells or ritual purity or even about Jacob. It's about shame and the ways we deal with it. This woman deals with her shame with men. And she's content to pretend that that's okay and that, she's, that it's going to work. And again, we don't know the specifics of why, but it, it hardly matters. She, she's currently with another man who is not her husband, and she's ready to pretend that that is not a problem. Instead, I mean, you, can't, you cannot miss the irony. Instead, she's going back to the well over and over and over again with the same results. More shame, more isolation, broken cisterns, poison water. 
Notice with me, it is no accident that Jesus, a man, meets a woman in need of a real husband at a well. In fact, if you were to read through the entire Old Testament, okay, especially Genesis, you would notice that when a man meets a woman at a well, they get married, almost to a T. Jacob himself, who is referenced here, met Rachel, his wife, at a well. Jesus has just been described by John the Baptist at the end of chapter 3 as the bridegroom, the husband, looking for his bride. He has found her, and she's nothing like what we expected. Now, this is not a romantic offer from Jesus, but it is an existential one. It's as if Jesus is saying to this woman, you keep returning to this well, and you will thirst again. And it won't work, but I can be the husband that you seem never able to find. Who will never leave you or forsake you. The water I give will never let you down. Jesus is after our shame. Even if we don't want to talk about it. And there are, there are wells in our lives, there are deep wells in our lives that we all return to again and again hoping for water this time that never seems to quench our thirst. So ask yourself, where are you pretending that the well is good enough? What shame are you ignoring or hiding or stuffing or medicating with something else? You may be used to going back to the well alone in the heat of the day, but Jesus will never be content with that in your life. He's after your shame. And he will go there whether you want him to or not. He will go there. Whatever you may be after with him, he is after your shame. This woman, by the way, she's not ready for that conversation. She's, she's skeptical. She knows Jesus is not just a normal guy, but she doesn't really trust him yet. And you see that in verse 19. She says, uh, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place, and that you there's plural. Y'all say, you people say, you Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, calling Jesus a prophet is actually no small thing for this woman. One of the distinctives of Samaritan Judaism, we might call it, was that they only saw the first five books of Moses as authoritative. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay? They did not read, for example, the prophets at all. So for her to call Jesus a prophet meant that she wondered if he was the one that Moses promised in Deuteronomy, where Moses says, another prophet will arise like me. Okay? That's something. But she's also pivoted. Did you notice that? to a theological discussion. <laughs> the Samaritans worship on this mountain, she says, and she's, she's referencing Mount Gerizim, which she could probably point to from where this conversation is happening. But you Jews, you people, she says, you worship in Jerusalem, so which mountain is right? Now, I hinted earlier about the cultural hatred between these two groups of people. She's getting at the heart of that. You can read in 2 Kings, actually, when the northern kingdom of Israel, 
Samaria, when it was defeated by the Assyrian Empire, okay, this is in 722 BC, the land after it was conquered was resettled by Jews and foreigners together, and they married and had children, and the Jews of Jesus' day considered the Samaritans to be a mixed race, and they looked down on them for that. The Samaritans also seemed to mix their religion, too. There were pagan practices and some Jewish religion. They, they mixed their politics. They, they were, we know from history that the Samaritans were much more cooperative with the Greeks when they invaded, and then later the Romans at the time of Jesus, whereas the Jews in Galilee and Judea were not so cooperative at all. All that to say... When this woman asks Jesus about mountains, she isn't asking about mountains. These mountains, okay, represent an ideology. They represent a way of seeing the world. Gerizim and Jerusalem, they're more than just a theological curiosity. We read them now that way. We read them like Jesus, she's asking Jesus, hey, are you like free will or predestination or what? No. These mountains represent culture. They represent language. They represent politics. They represent right and wrong, good and evil, God and the devil. I mean, seriously. It is not far from how we view, for example, conservative and liberal today, but even more divisive than that. Talking hundreds of years of division, strong opinions rooted in experience and history and culture that lead to deep animosity. Which side are you on, Jesus? This woman asks. She wants to know, Jesus, where can I put you ideologically? Where do you fit into this world? And Jesus replies like this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So notice with me, Jesus, the woman asked, which mountain are you after? And he says to her, neither. Neither mountain. I don't want mountains. I don't want ideologies. I want worshipers. Jesus is after worshipers, not ideologies. And in, this is so easy for us to miss. In, in retrospect, okay, if you've studied the New Testament all the way through, it is easy for us to miss how intentionally Jesus seems to have drawn together people from across the ideologies and cultures of his day to be worshipers. We don't see it that way anymore. We don't see Jesus reaching out to the Roman appeasers and the rebels, to the tax collectors and the insurrectionists, to the fishermen and the Pharisees, to the seminary-trained Nicodemuses of John chapter 3, to the Samaritan peasants of John chapter 4. And Jesus isn't after their ideologies and their categories and their boundaries and their barriers. He's after worship in spirit and truth. This is Jesus' language, spirit and truth, for a new heart that only the Spirit can give, that results in a new obedience to the truth 
fundamentally that Jesus is Lord of all. Not this mountain or that mountain, but every mountain. And if you notice with me, for many who end up rejecting Jesus in the New Testament and in our time and place, it is not because they were not compelled by him, it's that the mountain came first. Sorry, Jesus, I need to pick my mountain. And you're not okay with that. Does Jesus have our worship or does the mountain come first? Now, this is something, whether we follow Jesus as long as we can remember or we're considering him for the first time and anywhere in between, that we have to ask ourselves. Our time, like ancient times, like every time, is full of different mountains that all want to claim our allegiance and our affection. And when Jesus comes to us in the midst of all of that, and offers us living water, it does come at a price. You have to worship him and him alone, even at the expense of the culture and the politics and the ideologies that have shaped us. This is not to say that all of those things are bad. They aren't. But we cannot worship them and never thirst again. Doesn't work. It is hard to turn your eyes upon Jesus when there's a mountain in the way. You have to pick. What, what, what might it look like to move that mountain? How, how do we know we're worshiping Jesus truly in spirit and truth? Here's at least part of the answer to that question. Okay, stay with me here. Back to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, at just this moment, the disciples return from town. And they see Jesus is talking to a woman. And they're confused. And they're probably offended. But they don't say anything, right? It's like, just be cool, guys. Just roll with it. The woman, for her part, doesn't even seem to notice their presence at all. She, she's convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. She even leaves the water behind, notice? Okay, no more wells for her. She leaves her water behind. She goes back to town to the people she's been at least passively avoiding for her whole adult life to go tell them about Jesus. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They, meaning the, whole, the town, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Back to the disciples. Okay, the disciples are trying to give Jesus some bread because they think that's what Jesus really wants. He's hungry. He says in verse 32, no, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. They think someone snuck him a snack. <laughs> oh, good. He found a granola bar. No, Jesus is up to something here. This is a teaching moment. For anyone who would follow after him, notice with me, the disciples go into town with some money and they come back with bread. The Samaritan woman goes into town armed with, get this, nothing. No leadership training, unorthodox theology, a terrible reputation, zero social capital. And she comes back with the entire town. Who was the better disciple? The woman, 
for all her faults, knows what Jesus is after. She has found the living water, the true mountain, and it's him. She goes to get everyone to come and worship at the only temple that matters now. Come and see him. The disciples, meanwhile, have the right Bible. They follow Jesus. They obey kosher. They know Torah. And they have no idea what Jesus really wants. And they cannot imagine, whatever that is, that it would include people like her. This woman knows that what Jesus is after is everyone, even them. And the disciples don't. They don't. And Jesus will use this moment as an acid test, okay? When we are worshiping him in spirit and truth, it is more than knowing the right answers, okay? That's important. But it's also loving who Jesus loves. Even them, okay? Whoever them happens to be. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, lift your eyes and see the town coming to me. When they do so, they probably see half-breeds, okay? As terrible as that sounds, that's how they saw them. They saw enemies, idolaters, traitors, adulterers. Jesus says, look again. Verse 35, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See the fields are white for harvest. Do you see these people, how I see them? When we truly know Jesus, when we really encounter him, we begin to know that what Jesus is after, right? Even the people that our mountain says we should have nothing to do with, he's after them. This woman shows us. So ask yourself, can, can we bring our shame and our broken cisterns that cannot possibly quench our thirst and in exchange, receive the living water of Jesus' love and grace? Can we do that? Can we see beyond our mountain? Okay, past our prejudice and our politics and our talking points and our taboos of our day into the heart of Jesus? Do we know what he is after so deeply that we can go even to our enemies and tell them, come see a man who called me out on everything I ever did wrong. And he saved me anyway. And he can save you too. This is what Jesus is after. This is what he's after. This is what we are after. Here's what I want us to do as a part of our response. Okay, I want us to pray. And in particular, I want us to pray for our nine. So if you've been with us, we, you know as a church, we've taken 90 days of prayer to pray for nine specific people in our lives for 90 seconds a day. And what I want us to do now is to pray for those people, whoever and wherever they are, that they would have an encounter with Jesus like this. That they would become worshipers in spirit and in truth. And not only that Jesus would deal with them, but that he would deal with us. That he would give us his eyes to see a harvest of people, people he was and is and always will be after. So let's take 90 seconds now to pray. Bow your heads with me and let's pray.